0: I'm excited to be sitting down with Ezio Leyte today to talk about psychosexual examinations. Ezio, thanks for making the time for us today. My pleasure, Biz. One of the reasons I'm excited about talking to you today is I remember distinctly the first time I saw a psychosexual examination report. I've been a prosecutor for a couple of years and throughout my legal career and certainly through law school, I had never heard of such a thing. So I opened it up and learned that there was this whole set of evaluations that could be done, that could be a useful tool in the criminal justice system, and yet no one had ever told me about it. And then as a practicing attorney on the defense side, I often have a conversation with my clients about why I'm recommending they go through this evaluation. So what I'd love to do today is talk a little bit about the evaluation, how it's useful, even when people think they might be getting a bad report. And just a little bit about your experience and how people can help themselves by ultimately coming to you.
1: Absolutely. I'm delighted to expand on on all those ideas and concepts there because I've been doing this for quite a while. So that uh, can help inform your clients and, and the general public as well about what we do and how we interact with the courts.
0: Okay, let's start with that. Through my entire professional career, I have known you to be the gold standard with the judges here in Tarrant County, particularly because that's where I practice. And that's for good reason. You have been doing this, one, for a while, and two, you've built a reputation for testifying to the truth of the matter. And it is what it is. You're not there to testify necessarily for one side or another. But tell me about your career. How long have you been doing this? How often have you testified? Well, um, I...
1: Completed my last uh, graduate degree, I have three graduate degrees. My last one I completed in 83. And in 84, I started working, I went to work for a mental health outpatient clinic. And the year before, they started an abusive behavior program. And that abusive behavior program, they dealt with uh, anger management, drug abuse, and sexual uh, deviation problems. Actually, they started the sexual abuse program the year before I was there. So at that point, I had no interest in in the area. I just got thrown into that and I found it fascinating. In fact, back then I thought, my goodness, with this stuff being on TV all the time, people are gonna stop doing this type of behavior. The problem, however, is that human nature is what it is. There's some desire to do wrong inside all of us, some of us manage that well and some do not. So, uh, 84 is when I started. And after starting as a therapist in that uh, clinic, I became the director. And then 1990, I decided to open my own practice. So in 1990, I opened uh, psychotherapy services in York Fellows and we've expanded. We have about 10 clinicians at this point, And I, I do physiological assessments, psychosexual assessment, I testify in court, uh, and uh, I I like what I do. I even like testifying in court because I can bring information to inform the court about uh, uh, what the decision-making they're entering into. Absolutely. And you've testified all over Texas. I have, I have testified in state court, federal court, and I testified also in civil commitment
0: cases. So I've been all over the state of Texas as, as an expert witness. Yeah. If you had to guess how many trials you've testified in, what, what do you think the number would be? Uh, it would be over over well over 100. Yeah. And, and
1: interestingly enough, I think I, I've testified possibly equally to the prosecutor side and to the defense side. In the beginning, I was invited mostly by prosecutors. Interesting. Um, And then the defense attorneys got wind of what I did and decided to pull me in and use my uh, work as well. And so with time, it became more of a split between defense and and the prosecution.
0: Very interesting from the defense side, one of the great aspects of sending someone to you is we can do it with the attorney client privilege in place in other words you can become an extension of the service we're providing which means as we'll talk about this evaluation once i get an evaluation back and discuss it with my client i have the option of maybe sharing it and using it and maybe even using it in a trial or not using it at all it's just something that helped my client understand and assess the situation Potentially we'll take some steps unrelated to the criminal justice system after that. Um, so it's, it's very beneficial and protected from a defense attorney standpoint. So let's jump right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about a psychosexual evaluation and kind of the battery of tests in turn? Yes. Um,
1: it usually, uh, we're talking about an all day assessment effort. Uh, The first thing that I do is I sit down with the client. I I explain to the client some of the things that you said. For instance, I want the client to know that uh, it's best for them to be fully honest with me, as they should be fully honest with their attorney. Because if they are not honest with me, all this forensic assessment that I do has embedded in them uh, mechanisms to see if the client is being deceitful or not. So you don't want to spend a big money on an assessment and have that show that you're being deceptive. Exactly. So I explained to them part of what you said. You probably told them the same thing, but I tell them, you know, this is going to be used by your attorney to the extent that it helps you. Because your, attorney, your attorney's job is to defend you. So if it doesn't help you, the attorney's not going to use. But if it helps you. That's going to use you. The other thing that's important for you to know, and I tell the clients at the very beginning. For instance, you have a problem with alcohol. You have a history of abusing alcohol. You don't want people to know that you're an alcoholic because you think that's going to look bad on you. That's incorrect. My assessment is going to look at what was the makeup of this individual that. Got them to fail in this area here. So I'm going to be on purpose finding some deficits, finding some deficits so I can help with the deficits so attorney can be aware of that and we can find some mitigating matters to address that problem. So I have that conversation with them and I discuss their social history, family background. I discuss the offense. Uh, I discuss the offense not into a whole lot of details. I'm not trying to challenge them. I'm not an investigator, and I tell them that. Right. My, uh, my effort is to help them uh, let go some of that bad history and put that on the table for me so I can understand why they did what they did, right? Then I proceed with uh, psychometric testing. The psychometric testing includes a personality inventory. Um, with the personality inventory, I'm trying to figure out what is this person's makeup. I'll give you, for instance, if someone has a compulsive personality disorder and they're looking at pornography, part of their pool to look at pornography relates to that compulsivity. And once I know that, I can create solutions to address that
0: problem. So I, I, I do a personality inventory. As a quick aside, you just touched on pornography as the alleged offense, which raises the question, what kind of cases are you brought into? Is it sometimes voyeuristic offenses, hands-on offenses? What are you brought into?
1: It, it's, it's a combination. It can, be, it can be voyeuristic behaviors. It can be uh, hands-on offenses. And it's important for me to know that because uh, one of the things that I'm going to be talking about down the line is risk assessments. So it's important for me to know the nature of the offense because that helps me decide uh, how does that fall into an actuarial risk assessment to look at that person's risk and then to pass that information on to you, Right? I want to know what their IQ is. Um, if they have a low intelligence level, my effort in working with them is going to be different than someone with a high IQ. So intelligence is important and it's important for the sake of treatment and also important for the sake of assessing their judgment capability. So I'll do an IQ test, I'll do a sexual inventory. I want to know about their sexual history, the sexual behavior, the things that interest them and how any of that sexual background had an impact on
0: the offense. As you're describing this test, I'll tell you candidly, when I prepare clients to come in for an evaluation, I tell them, look, this is going to be one of the most invasive and potentially intrusive set of questions or evaluations you've ever thought of or imagined. But by being honest, we get to that end result of now we have a useful tool that could help us in many different ways. But they kind of have to be prepared for this is potentially something you've never talked to anyone about.
1: I, I appreciate you doing that because we need to be working in tandem. Uh, uh, you and I are telling the client the same thing. And so when he heard that from you and then he has that from me, he can see that we're on the same page. And you're right. It is uncomfortable. Uh, nonetheless, it's something that they, they're they better off being honest and transparent because that's how I give you information and that's how I create uh, uh, an alternative to to mitigate the deficits or the pathology that I find. Then uh, the other thing that I do is I look at risk assessment. In the state of Texas, anyone who is uh, given the label of sex offender is uh, assessed by Aesthetic 99 to see how do they fall under risk, risk to recidivate. They can be low risk, they can be high risk. And so, looking at their history, it helps me understand what their risk is. Uh, one of the things that is embedded in a risk assessment is age. Someone who is 21 years old, just because they're 21 years old, is gonna be a higher risk, age alone, than someone who is 65 years old. In fact, someone who is 65 years old may have a minus point on their risk assessment. Uh, But that's based on thousands and thousands of uh, uh, risk assessments that were done. But I need to know that information because I need to pass that information to you. If the client is an average risk or a low risk offender, that's an important piece of information for you to talk to the defense attorneys. So I want to find that information as well right so that's all part of what I call the psychometric piece of my assessment Uh, the next part of the assessment is an assessment of the sexual arousal okay
0: before we jump into that out of curiosity this battery of assessments is that unique to your office or if I went anywhere in Texas and asked for a psychosexual examination would it be the same set of evaluations? Well,
1: that's a, that's an interesting question. Psychologists, licensed professional counselors, uh, licensed clinical social workers, they all have the same pool of psychometric to put together. I, by experience, have put together what I believe to be best to give you the information. I, I am not sure what other people do, but by by licensing requirements they are required to do psychometric testing what they will pick and choose to give may be different than what i do understand but i want to use the best assessments that create the best information to give you or or the prosecutor or the judge uh, because if i take something to court i can stand by that so i'm not going to have any mickey mouse test i'm going to have something that's serious that can give information that no one can challenge because it has a reputation.
0: And just to put it in perspective, I know you've testified in over a hundred jury trials. How many evaluations do you think you've done over the course of your career? I, I've done well over a thousand yeah. uh, assessments through the years.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, 40 years is not 40 days. It's, it's, okay. it's a, lot of,
0: a lot of assessments right. uh, that we do. Yeah. Okay, so please continue. We're uh, getting into the next set of evaluations. And so, so the next assessment that we do is the plethysmograph. Can you explain for the viewers what the plethysmograph actually involves?
1: Yes. Uh, the plethysmograph is looking at um, different physiological measurements. Uh, one thing uh, that we do is we measure the circumference of the penis erections is a result of uh, increased localized blood pressure. So as the blood pressure to the penis increases, we have what we call erection. So we measure that. Prior to the test, the client is asked to measure uh, the circumference of their flaccid penis. We, not all penis measure the same way, they're not all alike. So depending on that, that circumference, we're gonna choose a gauge to fit that client. So the gauge fits snug and we have good measurement. So that's one physiological measurement. We also measure galvanic skin responses and breathing, which is something that we borrow from polygraphs. Uh, with the galvanic skin responses, a, a change, a certain change in the galvanic skin responses tell us the client is trying to control the results of the test. Same thing with the breathing. So the breathing and the galvanic skin responses, or even some of the responses of the penis, can tell us there is an effort. We call that response interference. There's response interference taking place, and, and that is affecting the results of the test. It. So it's scientifically, it's a very elaborate thing, and then we need to look at all those uh, changes there to compute what is this person to... Uh, sexual arousal or sexual preference to gender and to force versus uh, friendly sexual interaction or consent. Right. The plethysmograph is not a very well known tool by lay people and sometimes not even by professionals. Absolutely. I was very surprised the first time I read a report. But, but the plethysmograph is using a, a, a basic formula. For instance, if I were to put two men in front of a video and, uh, or a series of, let's say a series of, of uh, still pictures, pictures of adult males and adult females, and one guy had erectile responses to the adult males, not to the adult females, the other guy had response to the adult females, not to the adult males. I'm being simplistic here. Right. You'd classify one as a homosexual person in, in his sexuality, the other one is heterosexual. Right. Well, we expand that concept and look not only at the homosexuality and heterosexuality, but we also look at uh, arousal to gender, male, female, arousal to age from infants to adult, and uh, arousal to consent versus force. Right.
0: All very important factors when you're talking to a prosecutor.
1: Absolutely. Because, for instance, if an offender uh, committed sexual offense against, let's say, an 80 old daughter, and I do my assessment, And that person does not have a proclivity to 80-year-old girls, meaning he's not pedophilic in his sexual arousal response. Rather, he's got a response to adult females. So I have two things here. I have the fact that his arousal is not pedophilic, but it's an appropriate adult straight sexual response. And his offense is incest. Well, all the all the assessments and all the data is going to show that incest offenders are the least likely to recidivate. So, this guy is a true incest offender. So, his behavior is inappropriate. It's not acceptable. It's wrong. It's illegal. But his risk to recidivate is
0: very low. Yeah. And when we talk about recidivism for folks who may not be in the criminal justice system, that's just the likelihood a person may reoffend
1: offend that, That's correct. Uh, which is uh, very important to know because if someone has a high likelihood to repeat sexual behaviors, clearly we need to do something different with that person than someone who has a low likelihood to repeat new sexual crimes. Exactly.
0: Once you've completed the evaluations, you prepare a report that you then provide to whoever hired you, whether it's the client themselves, or sometimes I I suppose probation is asking you to do a psychosexual evaluation. Exactly, And so you would provide it to them. Sometimes, particularly from the defense side, clients are nervous about, well, what's that report gonna say about me, okay? And what if I get a bad evaluation? So I wanna first address that. What happens when there are deficits, uh, often errors in judgment, that are leading to the behaviors that we saw. What can that person then do? Does it end with just an evaluation, or what else does your office do? Yeah, that's a very important issue, because
1: oftentimes the prosecutor is going to say, "Oh, we did this assessment and it showed all these deficits." However, the, I've been seeing this client for a year, so the picture—the initial picture—is one. The picture of now is different. So when I see those deficits there and I see the client on a regular basis, I'm gonna work with the client to begin addressing those deficits. Well, actually that's what I do for all clients, not simply clients sent to me by defense attorneys. Once clients are placed on probation uh, and they're gonna see probation for five, 10 years, they also come to me, to do the very same thing. I want to mitigate that pathology. I want to create opportunities for this client to find solutions for things he did not know how to manage. Right. So I, my job is to give them management skills so they can deal with the problem, manage the problem, and demonstrate
0: to me that they can, in fact, control themselves. There's almost a double benefit for the clients that I send you. And of course, when we get the report, we go over the report with our clients, we explain it to them and talk about the strategy of how we're going to use this. But there's the personal benefit they receive that over the course of time, continued counseling will help them personally make better decisions, avoid whatever got them to the original situation. But there's also the benefit of I then get to take that improvement to the prosecutor. And it's not uncommon for me to say, hey, can I have a letter that says my client's been coming to y'all, y'all have seen improvement. And it's also not uncommon for me to get a much better outcome from the prosecutor because naturally criminal cases tend to take a long time to be resolved when they're serious. So if six months, 12 months or 18 months have gone by, I'm now going to the prosecutor and saying exactly that. Yes, yes. We we knew there were deficiencies, we have addressed them, and it's showing them this is a person who's not only capable, but is willing to engage in the process. You've got to have someone who's willing to make the changes to acknowledge, yes, I had some deficiencies in my thought processes, in my decision making, and start to address them, right? And so in a very difficult situation where we're perhaps looking at someone going to prison, we now have much more compelling reasons to why maybe this person should be given a chance on probation certainly what we're asking for at the very least is to keep this person from going to prison so um, has that been your experience that continued engagement with your office and the services ultimately provides some pretty significant results
1: well uh my experience is that again and again when i have the opportunity to work with a client and then I can show the progress and give you that progress, my experience is that it is a tremendous impact on how the prosecution see that. Because the prosecution is not willing to put someone back on the streets if that person is not showing any changes. So when when we have that demonstrable change, and I can provide you with that, Granted that the client is coming and working with me. And uh, to be honest with you, there are times, I'll give you an example. There are times that um, clients are coming to see me, Mm -hmm. but uh, talking about the issue of pornography, they have not been able to stop looking at pornography. So I'll call you and say, hey, the client's telling me he's not stopped looking at pornography. Let's do some work together to stop this behavior. And, and And then we do that so that the client can understand, not from just um, a clinical point of view, but from a legal point of view, how that can create damage for the client. Another thing that you and your staff are very good at is, uh, I'll give you this example. A client uh, has been charged with possession of child pornography. A person that only has by history Possession of child pornography and no hands on offenses is less likely to recidivate than someone who views child pornography but also has a history of hands on offenses. So I'll talk to the client and say, Be honest with me. Do you have any hands on offenses? Uh, If you do, I'm not going to, I'm going to drop this question, leave this alone. Um, But if you don't have any hands on offenses, I'm going to call your attorney. And we're going to talk to your attorney about you doing a sexual history polygraph. And, and, and then we proceed with that. The client does a sexual history polygraph. He has no history of hands-on offenses. You and I know this guy is a lower risk. Right. And then you can use that absolutely in, uh, uh, to help your case
0: as well. Absolutely. It's not uncommon for individuals who are in this situation. They're charged with a very serious offense of a sexual nature, they're looking at potentially prison time, they're looking at sex offender registration, that they feel like the world's coming down on them. What is your recommendation? Let's say someone's gone through the evaluation, they're coming to you for counseling faithfully. Do you recommend that they also see a counselor separately to deal with the anxiety and the fear and all the other things they're worried about? Or is that something that is part of what you're counseling them on? Okay, excellent question. Uh,
1: it, it varies, it depends on the case. For instance, if, if I diagnose a guy with having an obsessive compulsive disorder, I'm gonna try through the use of cognitive behavioral changes to see if I can bring that under control. I had a recent case where the client was very honest and he tried, but he had the hypersexuality issue and he could not control it. So I refer him to a psychiatrist with the approval of the attorney. The psychiatrist put him on Luvox, which is an SSRI medication, addresses depression, addresses anxiety, and he curbed that compulsivity with the client. Right. So all of a sudden, he has control over his sexuality. So alone, I could not have done the job. I had to bring in the psychiatrist with the SSRI medication and make a difference. Right. Um, there are some other cases where there could be depression issues and even suicidal issues that need to be addressed. If I, if it's more than I than I can handle, I would rather enlist the help of another mental health provider so that they can focus on that piece and I can focus on the piece of the sexuality. Uh, so it depends on the case. Right. But either a mental health professional or a psychiatrist together as a team, we can make, we can make a difference.
0: Wonderful. You're looking at this holistically. What's it going to take to help this person get to where we need to get them to? And that's in the back of your mind every time you see them and talk to them. Absolutely. Yeah. The the problem is, has too many facets.
1: And once I, I identify the different facets, Sometimes I have a piece, sometimes other professionals, you need to be involved in that. It's so it's on a case-by-case
0: basis that I'm going to make that decision. What do you wish, specifically, attorneys were better educated about when it comes to the services you provide, whether that's the prosecution or defense attorneys? Well, interestingly enough, your
1: office is very good at, at the follow-up. Many attorneys send the client, I do the report, I send the report, But I am not going to, it's up to the attorney to make sure that the client comes back for ongoing therapy sessions. Right. If it, it, because the attorney needs to be comfortable with that. Right. If the attorney does not make that happen, I'm not going to make that happen. Right. Though in the long run, that's the best case scenario in my opinion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As we just talked about, we've, we've seen so many massive changes in outcomes because the client went the whole journey. They, you know, completed what was expected of them. And it makes such a profound impact. If we had sat on our hands in those cases and waited the 12 or 18 months, there's no reason for the prosecutor to change their mind about what's going to happen. And then potentially you go to trial and that's often not a favorable position for someone accused to be in. And so it just compounds the problems potentially. So I appreciate that. With any scientific method that you're asked to testify as an expert in court about, there's always the question of how reliable are these results? The tools and assessments that you use, what kind of work has gone into identifying whether or not these are, in fact, reliable tests? That's a that's a good question.
1: When it comes to psychometric testing, we have validity and reliability embedded in all those tests. So... If the validity is questionable, then my report is going to say that I have not a whole lot of confidence in my results. That's on the psychometric side of it. On the plethysmograph side of it, uh, there could be that someone is responding to something that is part of their fantasy world, but not necessarily part of their behavioral world. So um, I'm going to make up a situation where someone, for instance, has uh, been charged with uh, possession of child pornography, and let's say most of the most of the images are images of uh, girls, but he has masturbated to images of boys as well, quite a bit. Well. I may get on the platysmograph that he's responding to boys, but there's no history of him acting out with boys. That's one possibility. I'll give you yet another possibility. Statistically, uh, we've uh, found out that there are times that men respond sexually to things that are part of their past. So a man is acting out with, let's say, a 12-year-old girl. He has no boy victims, but he's responded to the image of an eight-year-old boy. That response may be a false positive in a way because it's showing that, he, that he's attracted to boys, but that, that attraction is a result of his own sexual abuse. So what I'm going to do in my report If if that's part of my finding, I'm going to put that in my report. So my report is going to say that he's responding to boys, but it's very likely, and research has indicated, that this response is a result of his own history of sexual abuse and not necessarily a pervasive
0: sexual attraction to boys. I think that underscores, once again, their need to be honest with you about their own history, which is not just their own experiences, but experiences that were thrust upon them, perhaps. Correct. When we're talking about the psychometrics and you said there might be an occasion where you don't have a high level of confidence in the results, are you referring to that built-in system where if they're not answering questions consistently, then the test itself is going to tell you, hey, there's some problems with maybe the reliability of the answers. That's exactly right.
1: Yes. So there's a system that's going to tell me. I'll give you a a very clear example. The MSI is our our gold standard for sexual inventories. And if the client responds with 88 or more percent to false, we know the test is not valid. Got it. And if that's not valid, I'm going to say there's more to be known about this person's sexuality than we have reflected in our
0: report. Ezio, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know your time is valuable and uh, a lot of demands on your time. As I mentioned, having you who, in my mind, and certainly I think in many of our judges' minds, is the leading expert in this arena. We always want to know what your report would say. And frankly, my office only sends our clients to you uh, for good reason. Tell the audience, because hopefully people throughout Texas will watch this and maybe other defense attorneys who need to contact you or even prosecutors who need to contact you, might be looking for you. How can folks find your office?
1: Well, our office is at 301 West Rosedale, Fort Worth, Texas, 76104. Our phone number is 817 338 4471. And uh, anyone interested in our services can call our office and ask for me. And uh, the name is Ezio Leite and my my staff will direct uh, that uh, call to me and I will promptly respond to whoever's interested in
0: knowing more about us. Perfect. Ezio, we'll be sure to put your website in the description so folks can find you that way as well. Thank you. Thank you for spending your time with us and uh, your willingness to help educate. Hopefully again, attorneys will watch this from both sides, certainly potential clients and clients will watch this and we hope it is a useful tool. So thank you again. Thank you, my pleasure,
1: Betsy.